This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. My name is Seth Dare, and welcome to another episode of Speaker for the Living, where we talk about human trafficking, slave labor, and things like that. And today, we are going to talk about Blade Runner, since uh, Blade Runner 2049 was recently released. And so it's one way where we can talk about slavery, and yet get away from all of the stuff in the news cycle with uh, governments and politicians and and uh, even some of the recent human trafficking-related stories like forced adoptions and an FBI sting of a sex trafficking ring, mm-hmm. which uh, we, we may do a podcast on soon. We need to look at some of our other topics. But uh, yeah, how you doing, JJ? I am doing well. Co-host JJ Jamphone. Hey everybody, what's up? Yeah, I know. I think I've been doing about as well as one can. I think like a lot of people out there, I'm kind of suffering from bad news fatigue, mm-hmm. or maybe just news overload. Um, but I'm I'm doing my best to to remain hopeful, remain uh, positive, uh, keep on going. So. I've been aiming to spend less time on Facebook the last few weeks, and I, I've been somewhat successful. Yeah, I think I've been debating doing a, like a solid, just like off the internet, mm-hmm. except for what is absolutely required of me by like daily email checking and things of that nature. But that might be that might be useful. But that's about as far as I have a feeling I'm gonna get. So. Well, for those of you out there who may have Googled and came up with Blade Runner and slavery or something similar, we Uh do talk about sex trafficking and labor trafficking and some of the top stories and also some historical forms of slavery, whether that's 50 years ago with comfort women or uh, things that are more related to antebellum slavery. But sometimes we uh, want to talk about pop culture and where these serious themes intersect with movies or films, especially popular ones like Blade Runner. And it also gives us a chance to deal with a serious theme the way that speculative fiction does and get away from the news cycle, which uh-huh. which can be nice because this, this is all really heavy. We've had a few podcasts where we are feeling the weight of emotion at the end. Yeah. And... And and also, there's only so much any uh, anyone can handle. I, I I can imagine that not all of you listen to every episode every week because listening to trafficking all the time is probably not the most exciting thing. But uh, we thank you for listening and hope that uh, this is informative to you and that you do keep listening, but that you also take care of yourselves. Absolutely. So the movie Blade Runner came out in 1982. It was based on a book by Philip K. Dick called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Have you read anything by Philip K. Dick? I've read a number of things um, by him, but I I kind of like what the type of writing that Philip K. Dick 
does. I like science fiction. I like kind of older style science fiction. Um, the Man in the High Castle mm-hmm. um, is probably one of my favorites just because it's more like sci-fi alternative history. Um, of course, it's been made into a pretty phenomenal television show. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think what other like ones in particular because he wrote so much. Well, to name a number of them. Some of these are short stories. Some of these are novels. He wrote mostly short stories. But uh, The Adjustment Bureau, Total Recall, Minority Report, A Scanner Darkly, Imposter. Mm-hmm. Those are just a few. I think at this point now it might be, and this and this might be unkind of me, but I think that he's he's more known for the things that his books have been turned into, perhaps, than his his original Mm-hmm. stories I have read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and I will talk about a couple differences between that and the films and I've read a number of his anthologies one of the ones I particularly like is Second Variety yeah I like the one that I like the most probably after Man in the High Castle is oh, what's the whole title um, Flow My Tears the Policeman Said mm-hmm. which kind of I guess deals with Similar themes, I would say, to kind of like Minority Report or, or Blade Runner insofar as it's dealing with um, dystopian police states, positions people have in the world, how how you protect yourself, that sort of thing. So you can kind of see like similar themes through a lot of his work. Mm-hmm. So I have seen the three notable versions of the original Blade Runner, which was the theatrical, the director's cut, and the finals cut. I also recently saw 2049. Quite enjoyed it. We'll be focusing mostly on the the old one because that laid the groundwork for this uh, story. So Blade Runner was directed by Ridley Scott. You may know him for other movies, most notably uh, the Alien series. The uh, title was based on a few other books called Blade Runner and the term replicant was not also not in the book but they wanted something other than the word android because that had a certain meaning and he wanted to get people outside that meaning which was probably good because I, even I being a sci- science fiction fan tend to think of robots and he uh-huh. did, whereas uh, replicants even in the book are not robots they're synthetic humans the same way that Battlestar Galactica in the reimagined version also has synthetic humans, synthetically created as adults. So there's no childhood, but they also are hard to tell just by looking at them. And they, in many ways, just mimic humans. Now, uh, in the book and in the movie, it's so hard to tell that they end up basing it on empathetic response or uh, the ability to empathize. And even then, with the uh, Voight comp test, there's a test where they're asking questions and looking into the eye of, of the potential replicant. Based on how they respond, they are defining them either as human or not human. And because they have a four-year lifespan, they don't have a chance to develop full ability to process emotion. Mm-hmm. And that keeps them slightly separate from humanity and provides a way to, and like I said, in this case, tell them apart. They also could be bred to have 
super intelligence, such as the the main character in the movie, uh, Roy, or they can also have super strength or agility. And in the context of the Blade Runner world, they are created to be slaves. They're created to be bought, and they are sent to a colony, I believe a Mars colony, uh-huh. where they're workers. They, they might be uh, just grunt workers. They might be pleasure workers, i.e. sex slaves, as one of the characters in, in the movie is. And that's kind of the really basic idea there. Now, at the beginning of both the book and the movie, you have some replicants or androids in the book who escape and uh, kill some people and escape to Earth and are blending in with the population. And that's where it begins when they bring in Rick Deckard, who is a, a Blade Runner or a detective who hunts down these people. And he says early on, like, when he's talking to them, a humanoid robot is like any other machine. It can fluctuate between being a benefit and a hazard very rapidly. As a benefit, it's not our problem. And uh, in the book, it also says specifically, For Rick Deckard, an escaped humanoid robot, which had killed its master, which had been equipped with an intelligence greater than that of many human beings, which had no regard for animals, which possessed no ability to feel empathetic joy for another life form, success, or grief at that defeat, that for him epitomized the killers. Main reason I'm reading the quote is to get an idea of how they are perceived and how they are in this world. So before getting more into themes, that's a basic part of it. Uh, any any questions? Because uh, I believe you haven't watched Blade Runner yet, correct? I haven't. Um, one of the things, though, that I thought was interesting is when I was going through to prep for this, kind of looking at all the trailers... Um, something that was also reflected in a in a Gizmodo article was that the the speech made in the in the introduction of Blade Runner was initially every civilization was built off the back of a disposable workforce, and then in the second opener it was every leap of civilization was built off the back of slaves, and I thought that that was just sort of like an interesting switch. That kind of we've seen too with human trafficking rhetoric of this idea of the switch between calling a workforce disposable or having it be a workforce and then flat out being like, no, it's slaves. Mm-hmm. I I think that that's particularly interesting. It just seems very reflective, and for and for me, it sort of made the little part of my my brain that doesn't let me stop thinking about human trafficking and slavery which is a very annoying part of my brain, like kind of perk up and go, well, this is interesting. But what I would then ask though, as if for people who maybe don't haven't seen the film, the new film or aren't aware of it, maybe uh, like do, do replicants look that different from quote unquote normal human beings? They do not, but they're just better. Depends how they're designed. One might be designed to be more intelligent one might be designed to be more strong. One might be designed to be more athletic. And uh-huh. there's examples of those. The uh, central character, Roy Batty, who's a replicant, he is both strong and very intelligent. You have Leon, who is pretty much just strong. You have Pris, who is more athletic and a ple- you know, f- former pleasure slave. And then there's Zora. So we do kind Zora. of have like a breakdown of like... 
traditional modes of labor and sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. And then Zora, who uh, in the movies doing dancing entertainment, they all have different purposes. So they're put into specific roles. So you have slaves as property. Mm-hmm. So using the word slavery is appropriate. And in the movie at the end, Roy Batty talks about being a slave, what it's like to be a slave. And yes, they are slaves. They are property. Furthermore, they are created property, which gives it even an extra layer of they're patented, they're owned, they're very much created. And uh, as they see, as we see in the new one, there's also ID numbers in, in their DNA. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're very much part of the corporation. And by being property, the owner can decide what to do with them. Now, to go back to antebellum slavery in the United States, where there was legal ownership, there, were, there was a weird dichotomy where enslaved persons were property, but they were also persons. So they, they weren't property in the same way that, say, a plantation was property. Like, the law recognized that a plantation was not a person. Uh-huh. And it was precisely because an enslaved person was a person that they had a value that cattle wouldn't because cattle aren't as smart as an enslaved person. Now here, because they, there was cost to building them and, and, they, and they were purchased, like the, there was value there, but then that part is the same as antebellum slavery as well because there's a purchase involved. But they are literally things as conceived in Blade Runner. They are not persons in any way, shape, or form. They are things, which uh-huh. then makes it easier for them to be disposable or as the movie the original makes very clear when they're killed they're retired it's not a murder Okay, so that's that's what it's called with right yes okay that's rough (laughs) i mean i philo k dick is known for being kind of a harsh it's harsh sci-fi it's not it's not Mm -hmm. sweet fluffy sci-fi and i guess the films follow that same too. Yeah. Now, now there's an uh, interesting dichotomy between the movie and the book. There, there's multiple differences. For one, the Rosen Corporation, which is called the Terrell Corporation in the movie, but the Rosen Corporation in the book doesn't want Deckard to be successful, and so they, they find ways of trying to inhibit him from killing their androids. Mm-hmm. Which, if you're the owner of a thing, that makes a certain degree of sense. Whereas there's a certain level of cooperation in, in Blade Runner. But uh, one of the things that uh, that I see here is just the, the question of not just property and being disposable, mm-hmm. but dehumanization. I, could you explain that really for, for, for our audience members? What, what does mm-hmm. like dehumanization mean? Because I feel like that's a term you and I have used before. But. Mm-hmm. Well, dehumanization, in essence, is uh, talking about some type of person, whether it's a racial category, ethnic, country, class, etc., as less human, less valuable as people than an, another group. And usually when you're t- 
doing that, it's less than the group you're part of, that you consider yourself part of. And what can happen then is it then makes it easier to exploit them, to use them, to kill them, because either less than fully human or just less human than you. Uh-huh. With antebellum slavery, and I'm going to draw a parallel here with Blade Runner, there was the challenge of we have to justify slavery back then. And so what they would do when they, they looked at it is, okay, we'll attribute it to a race, loosely defined race that we call Negroes back in the, the day, and say that they're a servant race, that they're designed to be slaves. That it's, And even when they were freed, they, they, they weren't seen as equals. It was, well, they need our help. They're, they're going to be lost or they're going to be criminals. Like They need to be told what to do. And it creates a chicken and an egg of, like, are they dehumanized because they're slaves or are they slaves because they've been dehumanized? Mm-hmm. And uh, with... Blade Runner, they're, they're clearly seen as less than human, despite in this case that they have a very good looks, well, a few of them especially, that they might be smarter and they might be stronger, but still less than human. And by not allowing them to have full empathy, that reinforced that in, in the original, as uh, Deckard did. Like, if they're going to have no regard for animals, then they're not human and it's okay for me to kill them. So because they're things and they were created, they were made slaves. But then by virtue of being slaves and escaping, they're still dehumanized. And it's like, which comes first? Are are they dehumanized from the beginning? Are they dehumanized because they've been slaves? Or is it just so intertwined that it doesn't matter? I'd say in the case of replicants because they were created, that they are seen as things, that they, they, they are owned. But it's, it's problematic because they, in many respects, are human. Does Blade Runner have sort of any conversation about previous like versions of slavery or bonded labor in their society? I'm thinking about one of one of the reviews from the original Blade Runner um, by Robert Berenger talks about how there's a there's a, seems to be an ethnic or racial vacuum in an otherwise diverse population where it's not really clear if it's just if 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 African American slavery if slavery happened in this particular version of the U.S. or it didn't. Or if it did it so long ago, it's forgotten. But like, clearly, you can't be like creating a replicant slave workforce. You can't be breeding slaves and, and not think about sort of the ties to antebellum slavery. Do they deal with that at all, or is that just a no? I don't believe so. But that that also sounds like what Philip Dick would set up because he doesn't want to over-explain. Mm-hmm. And so you just kind of figure out the themes as you go along. Now, also in the book, one of the things that is clear in that setting is that Uh the replicants are also clones that now not in the sense that they're human clones like with Orphan Black, but in the sense that they are clones of a model. So you you have 
synthetic humans, which which are then devalued, even though in many respects they're the same. And there's different themes I could go into from there, but I'll go ahead and go into uh, the the least comfortable one. So I will give the the uh, sexual assault trigger warning here. Okay. So one of the characters is named Rachel. In the movie, she is not fully aware of who she is. She doesn't know she's a replicant. And when she finds out, uh, Deckard is not very nice. And uh, psychologically, the way he's talking to her, and uh, she's vulnerable at that point. But more notably, when she's back there again, he goes and he kisses her without in any sense there being consent and is then telling her what to do and it's by you know the average definition it is sexual assault which is it's interesting when I've seen it multiple times and that never clicked but it's also because my definition of sexual assault was inadequate but uh to, you know, as long as we're on the theme, like uh-huh. how how would you define sexual assault and like why why it's invasive? You know, Ooh. apart from apart from rape, which is pretty universally well seen as yeah. bad. Yeah, and this is this is a thing that I think that has also come up recently with yeah. the whole Me Too hashtag. So, like, the definition of sexual assault itself is when a person is forced or coerced to engage um, against their will in some form of, like, sexual contact, right? So, like, non-consensual sexual touching, but also sometimes it can be... um, So, it's like a non-consensual sexual touching. It's a form of sexual violence. Sexual assault is different from sexual harassment. So, someone screams something, like, at you that's violent on the street, that's harassment. If they make contact with you, then that's assault. And so, assault can, like you just mentioned, Seth, it can can be rape. But it also can be things like groping, molestation, or, like, um, the torturing of the person, like, in, in a sexual manner. So... That's everything from somebody, like, common examples, like somebody, like, grabbing you, um, like, grabbing your breast on the subway, or, you know, forcing a kiss upon you, or, um, you know, if you are in the bathroom, like, kicking down the door to come in and, and look at someone and, and touch them without permission. Like, that's, that would be, then, a, a form of assault. There is something called mass sexual assault. And that's when it's, like, a large group who surrounds someone and, like, inserts hand into their clothing, removes their clothing, gropes them, um, rubs against them, that that sort of thing. And that does, unfortunately, happen in various places around the world. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of in 2016, there was a rash of these like happening um, in Egypt that were reported on when a, when a foreign reporter got caught in one um, herself. So, and that's, that's, what sex, that's what sexual assault is. What sexual assault does is it has huge um, medical, psychological effects on victims and then that tends to have physical and economic effects on the area um, 
and psychological and emotional effects on the families then that these people belong to. And these, again, I would like to make clear, just because these are largely reported happening to women, they can happen to men too. But basically, like, just think of it as unwanted sexual contact. Just contact. And if I think what the Me, Who, Me Too hashtag revealed kind of abundantly is how, at least for women, how, how very, very normal almost sexual assault has been like just just thinking of myself like I can't tell you how many times I've had I mean I've been very lucky that I haven't had what was normally defined as like a violent sexual assault you know like I've never been raped or like sexually I would say like violently touched but like I've certainly been fondled I've certainly had people who like just run up to me on the street grab me and keep walking I've certainly had men rub up against me without permission so you know it's pretty normal unfortunately yeah, unfortunately. Uh-huh. God, we were. This was not going to be a sad one, Seth. No, <laughs> but that is part of it. Slaves and... Yeah, but you know the 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 way it's happening in the film, and th- this can happen in in movies sometimes where something is portrayed and uh, the audience doesn't necessarily perceive it to be what it is for a variety of reasons. And now when I watch it, I don't think about it the same way. And, you know, the relationship does become consensual, and I'm not sure at what point. Nevertheless, he is exploiting her vulnerability, and it's kind of an awkward scene. But in in the context of this discussion also, and, and this is based on what I've read from other people, there is a change in how he perceives Rachel. So initially, you could argue he's seeing her as a thing. You know, the the epitome of objectification. Like, I'm going to take advantage of this situation. I mean, hey, she looks attractive, and I'm going to do this. And he does. And then later on, when he meets up with her, he's asking, do you love me? Do you trust me? And, and allowing her to to answer to where he sees her as a human later on. Still the whole thing is still problematic but it's a sci-fi movie yeah it's yeah so what's notable is his change of perception from seeing her as less than fully human as an object to more of an equal mm-hmm. and, and in a lot of ways that that epitomizes the entire movie and the position of them there's also an inversion toward the end of the movie of like you know who who's really more human and you see this in the book too of in what ways are these replicants more alive? It's really blatant in the book, this dichotomy, because people are using these machines in order to affect their moods. And then also, it's nice that the new movie makes a little more clear the whole, um, is it is the animal real or is it fake? Whereas in the original one, it was primarily a snake. But that there aren't as many animals that are alive and so they become more valuable and so people get these fake animals that are mechanical that are cheaper so that they can have a real pet to feed and take care of and in some ways the people like Deckard are just kind of going by kind of numb to life but yet he's numbly killing off replicants as less than human so so it also asks what does it even mean to be alive what do you do with the emotions that you have and the way they portray Pris and, and Roy in the movie portray them in some way more alive than Deckard. So, JJ, yeah, are there any other uh, themes that you've seen in the show? 
I well, my my thing is is then too is this idea of of um, I mean, granted, it's it's because the replicants are are made mm-hmm. in in such a way that I presume they can't have children, correct? Like replicants can't reproduce themselves; they have to go through that's that's a lab process, right? They are not supposed to be able to reproduce; they are supposed to be created. So that's the way that is. So basically. Yeah, because what, cause what I'm thinking is, like, one of the things that strikes me is immediately, like, in terms of connections to past slavery, or past forms of slavery, it's that you have no reproductive control. You have no um, ability to not only set, you know, your own, own profession or your own day-to-day life, but also kind of who you partner with, what children you produce, how you live your life. And, no, and that's... Right, and no way to pass on what you've experienced. Yeah, there's no there's no heritage associated kind of with who you are. It's it's just your class, right? Yeah, there's no heritage, and so that that's another inversion event in the original Blade Runner when one of the replicants is passing on some of his experience verbally to Deckard. Because who who else is he going to share it with? Mhm. Yeah, that's rough. But also, like if we talk about the difference between slavery in the South and slavery in, in uh, the Caribbean, in other words, sugar slavery, with uh, antebellum slavery in the South, they realized, oh, we can have them reproduce and we don't have to keep buying them. Whereas on sugar plantations, they're like, we'll work them to death and we'll get more. And so knowing that they're only going to last so long, there really wasn't, and knowing that they're not going to have them reproduce, there really isn't much reason to not get the most of their slaves in the Blade Runner universe. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't explicitly say that, but that would make sense based on what's happened with slavery and even what happens with slavery now, which, which is trafficking, where when you only are going to have somebody for a short period of time, which is often the way it is today, you don't have as much reason to take care of your investment for a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, and then that was just going to be sort of my final, my final one, which is something that pulled up in one of the articles I was looking at when I was trying to sort of like educate myself on Blade Runner, which is, is the connection of when people, when replicants run away to stop, to try to stop being, Replicant. Well, I mean, they're still replicants, but to stop being treated as, as replicants, if they're caught, they're they're killed, which is is not dissimilar from what we've seen with modern day human trafficking. Is that when people try to flee, they're killed? Yeah, that's one interesting part of the story too, is that they weren't returned, and maybe that that once the replicants who had financial value got to Earth, that they no longer became property in a sense of of the corporation that then they were criminals to whom law enforcement now felt a responsibility to take care of for the sake of society and it was partially because they didn't want that society didn't want them around you know also interesting giving our history of slavery and the ideas of can the white man and negro live together as equals uh-huh. as was asked by Lincoln and other people. There's still people who think the answer to that is no, white nationalists being one. 
But uh, in in conclusion, like the dehumanization piece to me is kind of what's fascinating because they just seem to be dehumanized at every turn. Like they're they're made and then they become slaves, and once they they stop being slaves, their life is essentially forfeit if they're caught. They don't even have financial value at that point. You know what? There's just a moment when you're just like, and Blade Runner is realistic. Whoops. We made a bad choice. But uh, science fiction reflects back on themes in our own society mm-hmm. through an alternate society or a future time. So that's uh, that, that's that story. So it'll be shorter than some episodes, but uh, we will come back fully to reality next mm-hmm. next week. Yep, I am. Re- I I like. I'm next week should be fun too. Clockwise, just not as fun or joyful. And ugh, yeah, hopefully the world will be a little bit better <laughs> by then. Hopefully, I recommend everyone go out there and just like hug a dog. Yes, dogs are friendly, and, and they're party savers. Mm-hmm. Not not favors, savers. I've been saved by a dog multiple times at parties. Oh, nothing makes me happier than when I'm at a party with people I don't know, and I see that someone's got a dog or a cat there, and I now have an excuse to sit in the corner with said animal for the rest of the evening. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially before there were phones, before everyone had a cell phone that connected to the internet. Like, Oh, yeah. You didn't have that, and you went to a party, and you're like, wow, I don't know what to do. Hey, there's a dog. Hmm. A, a real dog, not not a mechanical one, like yeah. there's in Blade Runner. Thanks to Snuggle. All right. Well... We will let you go, people out there in the world. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring about human trafficking. Thank you for continuing to care about other people in the world, despite the glut of info. Yep. Until next time. Bye. All right. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.